Okay, for today then, what we're going to do, we're going to, uh, uh, this will be uh, while he's finishing his uh, wrap sandwich here. Uh, I, I want to continue a, just a little bit on the kingdom of God and proleptic eschatology uh, uh, from last time's class. It's very key, as I said, as a general uh, orientation of the conceptual second text that you got to have when you're working with the Bible. Now, we basically talked through um, the basic idea of proleptic eschatology, and I gave you three models by which to understand the coming of the reign and rule of God in Jesus Christ, the Christus Victor model, the hidden reality model, and everything in Christo. Uh, you could call this the Ross Perot model, but you guys aren't probably old enough uh, to remember when Ross Perot was running for president and was going against the... Oh, okay, you were following it then, were you? And were you following his, uh, were you following his uh, thing against NAFTA, where he said, NAFTA, uh, that great sucking sound you hear, is all the jobs going south of the border in the NAFTA agreement. All right, that notion of the great sucking sound is sort of the Pauline and Christo model, which is all of the promises get sucked up into Christ. Promises of judgment, promises of forgiveness of sins, new life, the Spirit being poured out, new creation, all that stuff comes to fruition in him. And thus you have the en Christo idea and us being baptized into Christ and putting on Christ. Now, I want to just spend a little bit of time fleshing out a few more points that I think are very important. The first is this. What I would call post-Jesus reign and rule of God. So after Jesus ascends to heaven, what is interesting is you still see the reign and rule of God active. Peter and John uh, heal the crippled man at the gate beautiful in Acts 3. Um, uh, Peter raises Dorcas. Uh, Paul raises Eutyches. But... It's sort of like the reign and rule of God isn't as powerful and as visible exactly as it when was when Jesus was there. Thus, they grab, you know, Peter and John and throw them into jail. And um, Acts 13, James is beheaded by Herod Agrippa. Now, when Jesus was with his disciples, he says in John, not one of the ones that you gave me has been harmed, has been taken out of my hand except the son of perdition. So, uh, all of a sudden, um, the people are actually subject to this kind of evil in a way that the followers of Jesus weren't exactly. Um, <clears throat> You do, you do see all kinds of signs, though, like when Paul's bit by the viper in Acts 28 and shakes it into the fire, and then the people are waiting for him to just fall over and, and be dead. But 
creation is sort of restored. It's not harming him anymore. <clears throat> now, this has led this has led a colleague of my former colleague and good friend, Bill Weinrich, who teaches at the Fort Wayne Seminary. It, this idea led him to what he called the concept of the spring. And that is that it's as if you have here that the reign and rule of God in Jesus Christ is, now this is all proleptic coming of the kingdom of God, that this is like the old eon, the old age. And ahead of time, into history, comes the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God, and kind of pushes back the might of the old age. But then it seems as if when Jesus leaves the scene, it's sort of like the old age kind of seems to weigh heavier, do better, or something like that. I mean, the, the reign and rule of God is powerful and it's visible, but all of a sudden James gets killed and so forth. Well, I think a lot of people would say today that you're thinking maybe, you know what, <clears throat> like say after the apostolic age, is the old age actually kind of dominating? Does, does it disappear? Should there be no spring there at all? Well, this problem of the strength and visibility of the reign and rule of God has led some people to conclude, and you find this idea around the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that they begin to define the kingdom of God in the following way. The reign and rule of God in the hearts of believers. How many of you have heard that kind of definition? Yeah, very common definition. The reign and rule of God in your heart. That is not correct. When Jesus heals the lame man, it's not the reign and rule of God in your heart. When Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, it's not anybody's reign in your heart. And when uh, uh, Paul uh, shakes the viper into the fire or raises up uh, Eutyches, it's not the reign and rule of God in anybody's heart. But you do get the impression that maybe today you kind of see this less powerfully. However, note the concept that I put up on the board of an actual spring, not an insertion of a piece of wood. That is to say, a spring will go up and down like this. So you could say something like this in the book of Acts. You have the outpouring of the Spirit, the raising of Dorcas. Well, then you have the captivity of Paul and Silas, the death of James and nobody could do anything about it. See, So you kind of have that sort of phenomenon. I think it's right to say that in our day and age, you have the same phenomenon. Now, we tend not to think about this, or we tend to minimize it, but, you know, um, people will tell you who've been on the mission fields that they will see miraculous activities by God in support of the gospel. Very interesting story from a former colleague of mine 
who was in Africa and who was the only missionary, if I've got this story right, within like 200 miles and came down with malaria and had no medicine. It's something like this, the story. And was essentially, the malaria was held at bay with aspirin. Well, there was no other word of the gospel being preached within many miles. I mean, it, you know, it's as if God's kind of taking care of that issue. You might say, spring is up. There are occasions where a congregation prays for someone with incurable cancer, person's cured. And, I mean, you all know this, of cases where the doctor says, humanly speaking, there is no explanation. And, of course, we also, we have to add in here, I'm kind of going now to the Johannine hidden reality. You think of the new life we have in baptism and the forgiveness of sins pronounced by the pastor and so on and so forth. Now, what's great, so, so, it's the concept of the spring. That is to say, up and down, up and down. Now, the parousia, the second coming, is essentially when, wham, the, the spring just explodes and there is no more old age. And it has just exploded completely off the scene and that is when Christ is all in all kind of interesting, a uh, former student of mine was sort of fascinated by this, and he actually drew up uh, some diagrams here. He's got the old eon, the coming of Christ. Then in this next one, notice here, kind of compression, oppression. And then he's, he's got this kind of thing. <laughs> then what he did for the last picture is this. Boing! with the whole thing just kind of exploding at the second coming. Very interesting portrayal. Uh, now, let me just say, charismatics and Missouri Synod Lutherans both tend not to believe in the concept of the spring from opposite ends. That is to say, charismatics tend to believe that the spring is never down. Okay? Everybody's got to speak in tongues. Got to be healing. Got to have people being raised from the dead. If you don't have it, it is some kind of indictment of whether the Spirit of God is actually working. People in our context tend to think the spring is never up. So everything... Uh, Justin, just like you were acknowledging back there, everything is in your heart. You know, you just shut up everything into your heart. I think you've got to be more open than that to the working of God and what he's doing. So this is a pretty, I think this is a pretty helpful thing, and we are dealing here now with this now, with the Christus Victor model, the battle back and forth. Now, it was interesting, those of you who are in chapel today, <clears throat> Dave Schmidt used this incredible sentence, and I want to quote it to you because it's perfect for this. God has woven the threads of eternity into the fabric of your daily life. 
Let me repeat that. God has woven the threads of eternity into the fabric of your daily life. Let me give you an example of what he's talking about and about the fact that the spring is never completely down. And that is your sanctification. Dave talked about that today. When you actually think godly thoughts, do godly deeds with your hands, go to godly places with your feet, restore people physically, you are, this is the way I like to put it, a sort of guerrilla fighter from the future bringing into this dark age a foretaste of the age to come when creation will be fully restored and our bodies will be perfect. Let's go back to that Zephaniah passage. I will leave in the midst of you a people who are humble and lowly and will call upon the name of the Lord. Zephaniah 3. All right. When we are like that, the renewal of creation at the end of time is already being instantiated now in God's creation, now in time, proleptically. Thus, sanctification is not not doing what's really fun. Sanctification is holy guerrilla warfare from the future of the new creation. When we are restored fully to what God has intended for humanity. That's what sanctification is really all about. And that's why the spring is never fully down. So I, this is why I love that quotation about weaving the threads of eternity into the fabric of your daily life. It's another way of saying you're part of the spring. Now, I want to say a little bit more about the Old Testament. Last time, we talked about the Old Testament as also participating in the proleptic eschatological um, understanding, I guess would be the way to say it. And so if you'll take a look at your book on page 258, there is the chart about the age to come, the ha melon ion, the new age with the Christ event. But notice how I'm doing this, that the Old Testament is a proleptic and preliminary manifestation of the age to come, and not essentially, turn the page to page 260, not essentially like footnote 17, like this. Now that does happen. I'm not saying there isn't something to footnote 17 on page 260. But I am saying that the essential way in which we're to understand the Old Testament is like the chart on 258, which means that the end of all things, the age to come of restoration, is proleptically here in the Christ event 
and then here proleptically in the Old Testament, but in what I have called kind of a two-dimensional way, a shadowy way. Remember our box of chocolates? Okay? Instead of getting the chocolates, as I said at the end of the period, you get the diagram on the inside of the box, you get the shape of the holder of the chocolate, and there's a few little crumbs in the bottom. All right? Now, that's why, essentially, so much in the Old Testament is actually a type of what is to come. And by type, we mean something that is a foreshadowing or foretaste of what is to come. Now, essentially, this idea of it being a two-dimensional or black-and-white version of this, or a shadow of this, this is actually said in the New Testament in Colossians 2.17. And he talks about uh, feast days and holy days and Sabbaths, which he says are a skiah, which is a shadow of the things that are to come. And that is also used in the book of Hebrews quite a lot. That's Colossians 2.17. Now, I've got an illustration here, believe it or not, from a perfume ad of Givenchy. Okay. Now, Givenchy parfum. Now, look at this picture here of the perfume Isatis. Here is a woman sitting in this room. Here's Givenchy himself. She's waiting for a guy, and look here. The shadow of the guy is coming into the room before the guy enters the room. This is a perfect illustration of the Old Testament. The shadow precedes the substance in time. It gives you a really good idea of the substance but it's only kind of a two-dimensional black-and-white version of it. So the kings of Israel are types of Christ. They're called sons of God, but that's only done non-literally. Non-literally. And they are mere mortals. And they die. And they only rule over part of the earth. But you do get a preview of the whole thing. Now, what you actually have with the Old Testament then is you have these pictorials, these typological pictorials, so that, for example, um, I'm going to use what just came into my mind as the second thing. The perfection of the priests. They had to have no missing hands, no crushed feet, and so on like that, eyes intact. Why? Because they're sort of a two-dimensional pictorial of the new creation 
when our bodies will be in perfection and we will never die. But then, in a number of places in the Old Testament, this foreshadowing actually becomes something of a foretasting in that, and here's some good Lutheran phraseology, sort of in, with, and under the type actually comes benefits, not just a pictorial. I'm thinking of the bronze serpent on the pole in the wilderness. And Jesus talks about that in John 3. All right? It's only a type of Christ's salvation, but the people who looked to it were actually saved. But they were only saved temporally, not eternally. See? So kind of in, with, and under this bronze serpent thing, you actually had salvation. Better example, the sacrificial system. In the sacrificial system, you only had sheep and goats, but in, with, and under it, what do you get? You actually get the forgiveness of sins. But it's sort of proleptic of the true, actual forgiveness of sins that you get in the sacrifice of Christ. Now, all of this relates, then, to the issue of prophecy and fulfillment in Addendum 11D. Now, look up on the board. In my view, prophecy actually depends upon the ontology of that understanding of history. You notice what I'm actually doing is running everything backwards? The future is controlling the past. The future is determining what happens before it. So, and, and, the future and what is prior to it are actually connected in some way. Now, that's why... Paul can say, do you remember what I call the best sneaky good passage of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, where Paul says, all, things were, all these things happened typicos, typologically, and were written down for our instruction, and I was focusing on the last part of that, upon whom the ends of the ages have already come. But let's focus on the first part of that verse now. Why were they written down for our instruction? It's because this is actually a, uh, a shadow of what is to come. It's not unrelated to it. It's actually determined by it. Therefore, and this is absolutely key hermeneutically, this is why we keep the Old Testament in the canon. Because it is a skiah of the things to come. It's not irrelevant. It is not, as it were, a first attempt gone bad. Or an early version of God's relationship to man, but now it's all been superseded. No, no. So what the church is actually like is the church is like people, if you imagine this to be a mirror, The church is like people marching into the future who are also looking in a mirror to see the past, which is going to help them because they're going to be able to see what the future is like. 
Thus we get entry into the promised land. Okay? So you do actually get a time of rest. You do actually get forgiveness of sins, and so on and so forth. Now, this means that for prophecy, doing this, because there's actually this kind of relationship. Well, uh, let, me, let me just back up for a second here, uh, just away from prophecy. Let me just back up. <clears throat> when you're describing the Old Testament, Psalm 72, and you're describing Solomon and the king and so on, when you're describing him, those words do have relevance to what's coming here in the other manifestations of the kingdom of God because they're connected to each other. And now when you get to prophecy, prophecy then has the possibility of actually linking these so that the prophet, and this is what in the, in the book in chapter uh, addendum 11d was called theoria, where the prophet sees the Old Testament event and sees its relationship to the ultimate fulfillment. Now, an excellent example of this is in Joel. And would you just look in your Bibles in Joel here uh, to um, uh, chapter 2, 1 to 11. And I'm just actually interested here in the way Joel sort of sets this whole thing out. And he says here at the beginning, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, a day of darkness and gloom, thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people like never before. Verse 3 is interesting. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame. The land is like the Garden of Eden before, but after them like a desolate wilderness. Verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. Now, all of that sounds really eschatological, the darkening of the sun and all that, the fire and everything like that. Well, then you realize, actually, though, that... Um, he is talking about the armies coming. Look at verses 12 to 14 and then 20. Yet even now, says the Lord, return with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and repent and leave a blessing behind him. And then in verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. Well, now, if you take a look at that, you see that there's an historical army that's threatening. The one that Yahweh is going to drive away. And the people can repent. But what does he do? What does Joel do with this prophecy? He dresses up God's judgment coming with the garments of eschatological judgment coming, the judgment of the last day. That's this idea of theoria. You're seeing this 
and this, and you are dressing up the Old Testament event in the eschatological garments to show you its ultimate significance and to show you what it really involves. Okay? So, you know from this that there will be an end-time justice of God, and you know that the people of the northern kingdom are getting a foretaste of this in the coming of the army, which is going to be devastating for them. That is to say, when the people come, like say for Amos, when the people come from Assyria for the northern kingdom and take them away, when the people come from Babylonia to the southern kingdom, Jeremiah, to take them away, they are receiving a kind of a two-dimensional means, kind of a means version of the eschatological kingdom of God, that is, reign and rule of God coming in in judgment ahead of him. It's not just armies beating them up. It's a foretaste of God's eschatological judgment. Kind, kind of like when the demons say, have you come before the time? But it's through means. The Old Testament is always kind of through means like that. God is not God is not physically present with them as he is with Jesus, where you have Emmanuel, God with us. Um, Now, this does not mean, some people have misunderstood me to mean, that I think they've misunderstood and thought I meant there are no prophecies that are just what are called rectilinear, direct prophecies where a guy is... predicting something about the coming of Jesus. Well, of course there are, like Micah 5, 2, thou Bethlehem Ephrathah. Sure, there are those. But there are also these kind, in these theoria ones, where you see the future and you see the nearer future and put them together. You know what we have? We have something like that in the way Jesus talks in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world where you get the destruction of Jerusalem blended together with the end of the world. And what's that saying? Eschatological judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. By the way, that's one of the reasons why the whole game has changed. The whole game has changed. There aren't any more sacrifices there. There's been the perfect sacrifice. Now, by the way, I'd like to just... kind of end this part by making the following statement, which I think is theologically really important. As you may have noticed when I made my presentation last time, I said it was much harder to show the judgment side than the grace side in the mission of our Lord. Remember I reversed it? I did the ten grace sides, and then I did the, the judgment side. You know what? That's semiotically significant. That is to say, God comes proleptically, eschatologically in Christ. And when he does that, it's much more on the side of bringing grace than it is of bringing justice, judgment. 
you can see the grace side way easier than the judgment side. Think of this. When Jesus sends out the 70 in Luke 10, he tells them, go to the village. Whoever accepts you, receives you, stay there. Heal the sick, raise the dead, say the kingdom of God has come upon you. Whoever does not receive you, shake the dust off your feet, call down fire from heaven and burn them to a crisp. No, no, that's not what he says. What does he say? Shake off the dust of your feet and tell them what? See you later. God's going to see you later. That is to say, just know this, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. So in other words, what you do is you bestow the grace, but you pronounce the judgment. Now, if that reading on level two, if that doesn't show you what kind of God we have, nothing will. The extra mile for grace, the extra mile for forgiveness before the axe falls. So why is there this proleptic coming in Christ? Why didn't this all just kind of explode onto the scene? I think that's what John the Baptist thought. Because his winnowing fork is in his hand. The axe is already laid to the root of the tree. What is all that stuff? Eh? And that's probably, I mean, he knew God was coming. And then he sends the disciples and says, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Why is he raising that question? I think for two reasons. Number one, Jesus isn't just smacking everybody about. And number two, remember the spring concept? One of the things that was going to happen in the end of days is prisoners would be released. Where is he? Sitting in prison. You can see prisoners being released. Peter, in chapter 12 of Acts, and in, um, or is that 11, when he walks out, the, the gate opens automatically. And most uh, beautifully, in the case of Paul and Silas in uh, Philippi, when the gates uh, are thrown open and, the, you know, the guy's going to kill himself, the jailer at Philippi, and he says, no, no, we're all here. So, so here's the first sort of Velt's explanation of why there was a proleptic coming. It's another chance for grace. Here's the second reason why. When the promises were all fulfilled in principle, even though they were not filled without, fulfilled without remainder. They were indeed fulfilled in principle, which meant that God could get beyond their restrictions, explode the straitjacket, and get on to bigger things. What am I talking about there? I mean the specifically Jewish configuration of the promises. Things like the people will return to the land. Okay? That's, we see that being fulfilled at Pentecost. But you know what? God's goal was never 
some kind of a 40 by 80 mile strip of land on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. That's not God's focus. His focus is the whole earth, the whole world, everybody. In you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. So what happens, and I, by the way, guys, this is really critical, I think, in, term, in theological terms on level two. This is exactly why with this you get the fulfillment so that everything explodes outward now and there's no more specifically Jewish caste or Jewish restrictions or configurations on the promise. No more sacrifices of bulls and goats. No more having to be circumcised. No more having to go to Jerusalem. Because now, now the time is coming, Jesus says, and now is. John 4. When those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And they won't worship either here in Gerizim and Ebal in Samaria, and they're not going to worship in Jerusalem, but they'll worship him in spirit and in truth. The gospel's got to shed its specific cultural bindings. And it's enabled to do that by being fulfilled in principle and then exploding out so that it can now encompass everybody. By the way, uh, one last thing. I just have a note for myself here. One last thing on this, uh, on this business of prophecy and fulfillment. You've got these direct, these rectilinear prophecies such as uh, uh, Micah 5.2. You've got the more typological prophecies, like in Joel. And then you can argue about them, some of them. And I think Isaiah 7.14 is an example. The Alma uh, passage about a virgin, and Alma is sort of virgin, actually maiden, assumed to be a virgin, but there's evidence, that this is in the book, there's evidence that that was also a term used for the royal wife of the king. So it could refer non-literally to this woman here and then literally in the future. So there's all kinds of possibilities. But whatever you're talking about, we are not here talking about somehow the prophet not seeing the future. No, no, he's seeing the future. The question is, can he do sort of double entendre work with his language? And I think this is perfectly feasible. Okay. Uh, now, I've got to get on to uh, 12 and so on. Any last comments or anything on this? Any quick questions? Uh, yes. On that perfume commercial thing, you got your hand right there. How do we know that guy's walking in the room? Is he, are we seeing his shadow walk away? Well... Well, I mean, we, we don't know that. My illustration would be that he is coming, and I would think so. Otherwise, the Isati perfume is rep repelling. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't think you sell a lot doing that. But, uh, uh, you know, but essentially I'm thinking of it coming, and I think he's thinking of it that way as well. Um, Okay, now, let's go on to chapter 12 and uh, pragmatics. The whole business of speech act theory, illocutionary force, and so on. 
this is a really important chapter, guys, for you as preachers and for you as clergy. This chapter is not so important for people who are not functioning in the pastoral office. I mean, it's still important, but it's not as important. Now, let me just do a little backgrounding here. Uh, a lot of what's here is related, and you guys picked this up in your papers, uh, to J.L. Austin's book, How to Do Things with Words. Uh, and he was the guy who, so to speak, I, I, I invented, I guess you can use that phrase, speech act theory. And what he saw is that language essentially does not have as its function informing people. People try to do things with words. That's kind of the first thing, is that they try to do things with words. And hence, we have the three forces, so to speak, the locutionary, the illocutionary, and the perlocutionary force of an utterance. Now, this is essentially information. Illocutionary is what it counts as and in general, just so you can shorthand this in your own mind, think in terms of the affective realm. That is to say, this would be in the realm, I guess you would put it, of uh, emotions, feelings. So, like here, let me just put up a couple of words here. Like blame, accuse, uh, comfort. And so forth. Notice how those are all kind of in the affective realm. So you'd say something in order to be effective in that activity. Then perlocutionary, see that this is still kind of internalized. How a guy's gonna feel about the utterance, how a woman's gonna uh, sort of. Uh, emotionally react. Then perlocutionary is what's he supposed to do? So hence that idea at the beginning of the chapter of the woman with the guy going to go golfing and stuff like that. Are you going golfing? All right, she's trying to shame him. And then, and the idea is, isn't just that he feels ashamed. No, no, no. Put your clubs back out and stay and help me. See, it's actually supposed to issue in some activity. Now, this next thing that I'm going to say is, is stated in the book, but I find that students have a hard time getting this. There's a reason why I split off Addendum 12A. Austin doesn't. J.L. Austin, in my opinion, was confused in that he saw all of this, but then he also saw that sometimes we have what are called performative speech acts. And performative speech acts 
are ones in which you actually accomplish something in the very fact of saying them. The best example I know of this is a bet. If somebody says, I bet you a dollar you can't do that, saying it actually constitutes the bet. That's not a description of what you're doing. It's, that's not like saying, I am betting you right now. Now, here's why I said, for every one of you in this room, this is so important as a profession. Because clergy do performative speech acts on a regular basis in a way that ordinary lay folks don't. I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. That's not a description of what I'm doing. I'm actually doing it. In a marriage ceremony, I pronounce you man and wife is not a description. I am pronouncing you man and wife. It's actually doing it. So we, as clergy, actually function in this performative way. Now, I cut this off from chapter 12 because I think this is kind of fundamentally different from this notion here, which is not performative. You're hoping to be effective with a person. It's not performative. In performative, it actually happens whether or not. So, for example, in a marriage ceremony, the groom's really nervous, kind of loses his attention. The guy says, I pronounce you man and wife. They're man and wife whether or not he's responding right. See? Whether or not he's thinking about it. Now, Now, there are two big things here, and let me take them in reverse order. Under Performative Speech Act, and this is an addendum 12A, please be aware of how important it is that you get here on page 290, Chris Mitchell, who works at uh, Concordia Publishing House, it's his dissertation that I was uh, kind of working with here, that you have got to have the proper person, the proper form, with the proper meaning, within the proper setting. Now, that's why, that's why if there's a Eucharistic celebration, but it's in a movie, you're not actually having a Eucharist. If there's a baptism, even done by a Lutheran clergyman, In a movie, it's not a baptism. Now, this is very important. I I really want to hammer you guys on this. Because the Lutheran concept of the power of the word sometimes gets in the way of a proper understanding of this. It is not power of the word in such a way as to bulldoze speech act theory. So, in other words... You haven't, now, now, I can predict this. To, I, raise your hand if you're married. Raise your hand if you're married. Okay. When you guys went through the practice ceremony, like on Friday night, 
Did the preacher actually say, go through the ceremony and say, I pronounce you man and wife? They did? Yeah, well, he, he probably just said, and I'll say I pronounce you man and wife. No, no, that's not the same thing. Okay, but Andy, you said no. See, because all brides are worried about this. They need not be because it's not the ceremony. It's a practice for the ceremony. So pronouncing man and wife does not actually do it. I have to tell you, I've tried to describe this to brides. They do not believe me. So uh, you don't, you know, don't, don't try it. Don't try it. Just do, just do what Hutch said. Just say, at this point, I say. Now, I mean, this is, this is actually a very critical thing that uh, you need all three of these things. And that's why the Baptists do not have, in our understanding, a full Eucharist. Because while they say the words, it's not with the meaning that we are talking about having. Now, by the way, you know... You, tell me if this is in the book. I don't think it is. You know if you're doing a performative speech act. This is really interesting. By whether or not you use the simple form of the present tense and not the progressive form. So in other words, if I say, I pronounce you man and wife. Notice I use the form pronounce. I didn't say, I am pronouncing you man and wife. Now, when we use normal standard English, when I'm describing what I am actually engaged in, I always use the present progressive, except in certain verbs of sense like seeing, like you could say, I see you. But other than that, you always say, I am paying the bill. I'm lecturing right now. You are looking at me. When you do a performative speech act, you never use the progressive. You only use the simple form, I bet you $100. I pronounce you man and wife. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not I am baptizing you. So that's a, that's a very good, you know, kind of little linguistic key as to whether or not you're being performative. All right, now let's back up to here. I'd like to get one more thing in on this, and that is um, uh, two more things. Uh, First, for us as Lutherans, guys, please believe me on this. For us as Lutherans, speech act theory is so critical because we have understood, starting from Luther, that there are uses of the law, three of them, not meanings of the law. So when we say that the law functions as a curb, as a mirror, and as a rule, that's speech act theory. See? It's saying it stops you. It accuses you. It's not saying that there are three different meanings to the law. Same law, same meaning. Different illocutionary and hopefully perlocutionary forces. This is actually quite critical because sometimes people come away thinking, well, you've got different laws or something. No, no, no. Same law, 
different functions. And in your book, in chapter 12, there's that interesting description in there from, from uh, Romans 7 about how Paul talks about the law and the law caused me to covet and so on like that. See, it's all about functioning of the law. This is one of the reasons I'm big on speech act theory. It, it actually coheres very nicely with our understanding of the uses of the law, impacts of the law. All right, then the last thing is, <clears throat> I'm up here now. Despite everything I've said here, remember that in the end, this is a kind of handy shorthand, but that as a matter of fact, if you really kind of look at it, it's all information semiotics in the end. Now, here's what I mean. I've actually used this example in a National Society of Biblical Literature meeting when we were talking about speech act theory, and everybody agreed that this was correct. <clears throat> you and your friend are in a two-ton truck riding on a nice autumn afternoon day in, in, in the state of Indiana out in the backwoods. You're going along in this two-ton truck, leaves around and everything's beautiful, and you're in the passenger seat, and you, you notice along the road a weathered sign kind of half off, and it says, one-ton bridge ahead. So you go for a couple of hundred feet, and your friend's not slowing down, and you say to him, there's a one-ton bridge ahead. All right. Let's go through the three forces. Locutionary force, ahead of us there is a bridge that bears one ton. Illocutionary force, I'm worried about this and so should you be. Perlocutionary force, stop the truck and turn around. All right, now, I would contend that in the end you could have said all that. See, you could have said all that. So you could say, this is just kind of a shorthand, shortcut way of talking about this, but it's sort of a giant filling-in-the-blank process is what it actually is. But I think conveniently, to talk about this conveniently, it's not bad to talk about informing, what does it count as emotionally, and doing. And let me end then with the following. Um, and that is that there are, there are a couple of things that you already know from your previous knowledge of stuff that supports this speech act theory. Here's the first one. When somebody hands out a course syllabus, they will often have knowledge, skills, and attitudes for the purposes of the course. Think about that a second. And let's just reverse the thing, knowledge, attitudes, and skills. Knowledge, attitudes, skills. It's exactly what you're talking about here. Now, how many of you were at the Esslinger lecture earlier today? All right, some of you were there. You notice how he was talking about Aristotle's three things? You're going to get that in homiletics. And Aristotle says... Where's my pen here? Oh, it's inside the book. Thank you. Uh, Aristotle says that in a rhetorical presentation, there are three factors. Logos, 
uh, ethos and pathos. All right? So this is the argumentation. This is what the, uh, uh, this is the, the persona of the speaker. And pathos is the emotional reaction in the audience. Hey, look at this, folks. Does this correspond to Veltzism? The argument is level one and level two. Ethos, what you know about the persona of the speaker, is what you do when you read or listen on level three. And pathos is, so all of this is locutionary force, and pathos is illocutionary force. That is to say, the emotional reaction you want to get in the hearer. Now, Aristotle would also tell you that you finally want people to do some stuff, and that would be perlocutionary force. But this is, in its own interesting way, this is kind of replicated in logos, ethos, and pathos. And you haven't had uh, homiletics yet, but you'll get that in your first class. So try to cross-fertilize, cross-reference that to what we're talking about in Chapter 12. It's, uh, it actually makes quite a lot of sense. Okay. Um, uh, thanks very much. Uh, we're going to go on to um, uh, 13 for tomorrow. And I want to respond to, uh, uh, what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to start out responding to Billy's uh, question about nonverbals. And uh, we'll just do that, and then we'll go on to the uh, thing about uh, application. Thank you.